0: Okay. Good morning, everyone. My name is Cole. I'm the youth pastor. I get to preach this morning. So, here we are. This is what we're doing. Uh, we are in the season of Epiphany. Um, this is the, Yes, this is the season of Epiphany. If I had the kids here to tell you the seasons again, uh, they would nail this one. They love this season. It's such a fun thing to say. But when you first embrace the church calendar, the the liturgical calendar, and what seasons we're in, and you kind of let those kind of seep into your imagination. Lent, Easter, Advent, Pentecost, they're kind of like the rock stars of the seasons, right? Epiphany, not so much. Uh, It's a little more of a nuanced season. It's one that I will tell you, um, I didn't know anything about the church calendar at all when I came to redemption. Um, I mean, I, I knew it existed, but I didn't really know it. Um, I still don't really know it, but I know at least enough to say I'm starting to really like epiphany. Uh, epiphany means revelation, not that kind of revelation. like Epiphany means like a revealing of something. That means this is the season we celebrate and create space space for a fresh revelation amongst us. These revelations. That we hope to know are something that has been true. This is key. There's something that has been true this whole time. We just couldn't see it before, or maybe we could see it, maybe we could feel it, but we couldn't quite put words to it. Okay, so it's a revelation that's been true this whole time. We just couldn't quite, you know, like put words to it. We couldn't quite say it, or maybe we were completely unconscious of it. I submit to you, if you want to practice during the season of Epiphany, That the art of putting words to these um, absurd and hidden aspects of our life together is called comedy. So a practice would be watch some comedians this season and notice how they name things that have been true the whole time. You're just like, yeah, that's funny because it's like, you know, you get it. Comedy is the profession of epiphany. The art of pulling back the cloud and putting your finger on some absurd aspect of our life together, some aspect of yourself, right, that is common, something that's a common experience, but we don't quite have a way of communicating it. My best example of this, and this, this is, for those younger in the room, I'm sorry, but the best example I have of this is when George on Seinfeld double dips the chip. <laughs> we now have language for this, like, absurd little social behavior that we probably didn't have before at least i don't remember you go ahead and keep it up there go ahead and keep it up there yeah i want to yeah look at that because the i love this scene where the guy comes up and is like you dipped the chip you took a bite and you dipped it again it's great it's great epiphany revealing something that was true the whole time we just couldn't say it right what an important practice in season just want to say, what an important practice in season. This is also kind of what therapy is about. So maybe that's a good practice during the season. Having someone outside your system help you see something that has been true the whole time. You just couldn't quite say it. Or you needed help crafting the language. This is a season for education, for reading, for studying, for reflecting, for researching. This is a season for service and volunteering, journaling and writing, Epiphany is all of that, but here is why. Epiphany is the season where we work to invite a revelation of what God, of, of who God is and who we are and what kind of world we're living in. And this morning, we begin, the text that's been given to us is Matthew chapter 2. So a quick setup, right, a quick setup before we begin reading the text. There are four Gospels. Amen. That's our sermon. (laughs) I'm just kidding. That's a youth group joke. Uh, Four books in the Bible that these are four books in the Bible that directly reference and discuss the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we we have all grown up in a world where we have been inundated with one story about how Jesus was born. Just one story. You take all four and you synthesize them together and we get one story. Or at least maybe We've only read Luke's version. We're like, Luke's version has a lot of stuff. Let's read that one. A lot of things means better, so let's read Luke. <laughs> right? And each gospel, each gospel is very different. If you've read it, each gospel is very different in their telling of Jesus' birth. <clears throat> one of them doesn't even talk about it. It's very weird. Each gospel is telling its own story. Each writer has their own agenda. They are trying to communicate something, and the stories of each gospel serve this undergirding message that is trying to be communicated. So in the West, we have horrible habits when reading the gospels. We're we're always asking, okay, what happened? What happened? What happened? But the gospels themselves are often asking us, do you get it? Do you see the point? Do you see it? Do you get it? For instance, let's look at Matthew, where our text comes comes from this morning. Here's what Matthew doesn't have. Matthew gives no details of how Joseph and Mary came to be in Bethlehem. The book opens, and they are just in Bethlehem. If an early church reader discovered Jesus by reading Matthew, they would have no idea about shepherds or the inn or anything like that. That, that, If they just discovered Matthew, which is totally reasonable that they would just have read that at first... They wouldn't have known all that stuff. Here's the actual text. Here's like the section uh, of the actual text of what Matthew says about Jesus' birth. This is hilarious. Listen to this. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, (laughs) that's it. There you go. Let's move on from the birth. (laughs) Merry Christmas, everyone. Here we go. So what Matthew does have, though, here's what Matthew does have. The first story surrounding Jesus' birth was Joseph's absurd act of fidelity accepting the pregnant Mary as his wife, despite the legal, religious, and cultural issues involved in that. Okay. The story right after the birth of Jesus right, is the story of, uh, of the acceptance of the Magi into the home of Mary and Joseph, despite the legal, religious, and cultural issues involved in that. Matthew 2 is the story of the Magi, and this is our story this morning. One more note on Matthew. I tricked you. One more note. Matthew 2 is the focus of a lot of biblical commentary. When you read the commentaries of Matthew, they spend a lot of time on it, And because it does seem to be this strange story, the story of the Magi is this strange story out of nowhere in the text. It it has these weird echoes of Pharaoh and the murdering of the Jewish firstborns in Egypt. So in other words, there's like a lot of meaning layered into Matthew 2. So if you want to spend some time unpacking it, you can go all day, which is why they spend so much time on it. Uh, One of the the, theologians says, the beginning of Matthew contains... In Matthew 2, it contains all the major movements of the rest of the book. To understand the Gospel of Matthew is to properly understand the story of the Magi. There's something about it that sets up chapter 3 and on. A story is an introduction to to what the rest of the Gospel is going to be about. So, let's take a look at the story. Just kidding. Here are some characters before we read the story. I'm just going to keep dangling it back here, and it's going to be, it's going to be fun. Uh, here are the character introductions uh, before we read it. Let's talk about Herod for a second. Herod was a Roman client king of Judea, like a middle manager for Rome. The history of his legacy, Herod the Great, is polarizing. He's known for these colossal building projects uh, throughout Judea his expansion of the second temple in Jerusalem, the construction of the port, Accessoria Maritima, the fortress of Masada, and the Herodium. And some view his legacy, it would be easy to look, view his legacy as like, oh, he's, a, he's the worst, he's terrible. But some people say like he built a bunch of stuff and, I don't know, Jerusalem kind of became an urban city. So some people say it was a success. Matthew does not seem to be a fan of Herod, considering how he's used in the story. Um, and so... He's a complex figure, and we're going to go with Matthew's telling of it. So the introduction to the Magi here, uh, the Magi refers to a caravan of people, not like just like three. Uh, it's like three or more. We don't really know. Uh, the caravan came from, and this is kind of a fight, the overall majority of scholars say Persia. And throughout history, we have struggled to make sense of these characters that just show up on the scene we we're like, Where, what's, what's going on with these, these people here? And the reason is that we in the West pretend that uh, politics and religion are separate. We pretend like they have nothing to do with each other. And in Persia, in this time, they had no such illusions. They didn't think this. So in Persia, the religious system and the political system each supported the other. They kind of propped each other up. Un- totally unlike today. Thank you. Good. Uh, uh, the Magi played this actual official hybrid role that was a, a, like a political religious role. As a, it was kind of a linchpin to society. And there is this historical story, actually, that shows the power the Magi had in Persian society. Um, the Magi tried leading a revolt against the monarchy of Persia at one point in history. Why would they do this? This is going to sound familiar. Uh, much like Israel, who had their violent revolts against Roman expansion around the same time, Persia's leadership chose to cast their allegiance with Rome and allowed Rome to move in and begin oppressing the people and destroying their culture. And the agreement was, amongst the monarchy of Persia and Rome, the current political religious system would stay intact and you could run your countries you f- see fit as long as you, one, helped with the expansion of Roman propaganda paid taxes to Caesar, and kept peace by any means necessary. And the Magi weren't fans of this. So, that sets us up. Let's actually read the text. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, "'Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews?' We saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. First note, real quick. These wise men go to the current king in Jerusalem and ask to see the one who has been born king of the Jews. Can we talk for a second if these are wise men, actually? Maybe we should just like, this feels like a giant strategic error on their part. The Magi, are fam- they're familiar with the wisdom traditions of other regions. The Persians were, were an extremely curious culture. They were known for this. And they were, looking for, they were looking for, you can assume, they were looking for a liberator from Roman occupation and corruption. Where's the one that's been born king of the Jews? This wasn't some sentimental trip. It was an alliance of mission. And Matthew is setting up his book to tell a story under the umbrella of deep turmoil in his world, and I think we can port that to ours as well. And some of the questions in play as we begin this story are, when you are powerless to fix large-scale corruption and division, what do you do? Right? Where do you go? Where do you find hope to live and work and play? These questions sit at the beginning of Epiphany, and they sit at the beginning of Matthew and this leads us to say then that Epiphany, there's something about Epiphany that's about hope. It's about searching for the revelation of hope in a world where you can go bankrupt trying to buy insulin. It's where we're trying to find the revelation of hope in a world where I have kids tell me they wear sneakers every day to school because it's better for running. You know why? Hope in the midst of an American church crisis where my students ask me, Cole, how can we be Christian and they also be Christian? And I say, that's a great question. I I don't even know. I don't know what this even means anymore. And if we follow the logic of epiphany, that means hope is located somewhere in the midst of us. And we all know it, but someone needs to speak it, right? Someone needs to reveal it. Someone needs to put language to it. And it needs to be revealed. And for whatever reason, the early church fathers believed that epiphany, this needed to happen every year. Someone needed to speak it again and again and again right at the beginning of the season. Because it's been true the whole time. Hope is here. Maybe we just forgot or we don't have words for it this year. So quick nerdy stuff here. Quick nerdy stuff. So if you're a Bible nerd person, okay. Uh, And this is going to be crucial to understand my point. Uh, There is this doctrine in orthodoxy called the doctrine of divine simplicity. And the idea is that you cannot divide God up into parts. This doctrine, I will say, has been used and abused. Um, But it's important. I'm going to tell you why I think the doctrine is important, and I don't think we should just throw it out. Um, It's a good doctrine. Here's why. When we say God's hope, when we say God's hope, uh, what we are talking about is God. This is key. When we talk about God's love, we're talking about God. Okay, You can't split God's hope off from God. You can't be like, I have God's hope, because it is God. Okay, And why is this a big deal? Well, think about it like this. Let's use justice, for example. You can't split God's justice off from God. When we talk about justice, we are talking about God. So, the government cannot apply and own... Go back one slide. Go back one slide. There we go. So, the government cannot apply God's justice. They don't, they don't have it. They don't own it. They, they might be capable of it, but it's not theirs. Does it make sense? That would be heresy. You can't split God's justice off from God, claim it as your own, and then use it as you see fit. God's justice is God. Therefore, it is as untamable as God is. Because God's justice is God. I keep repeating this, so because no, you can't split God into parts. So when we talk about God's hope, this is key, you can't possess it. You, you can be capable of it, but you don't own it. Just like we don't own God. One of our, a theologian says, like, I like this analogy. We are like a ship sunk to the bottom of the ocean. The ocean contains the ship, but the ship also contains the ocean. Okay? We, we don't own, we might be capable of God, and my, God is in us, but the idea that we own it is, is silly. Okay? So when we talk about hope being in the midst of us, but we need help seeing it, remember, nobody possesses it. It's not found in, in some place, and you need to give, your, give it away here. You can't wield it. You don't have it. The only thing we can do is bear witness when we are in the midst of it, when we're participating in it, when it's happening to us. Yeah? With me? Okay. The Eastern understanding would say that hope is to be participated in, not owned and given. That's very Western. God is to be participated in, not owned and given. Um, Now, that doesn't mean God isn't You get it. Okay. Does all this kind of make sense? All right. My wife said, I'm going to have to think about that, Cole. That's kind of abstract. And I said, yes, Uh, it's Eastern thinking. We're all Western people, so we have to keep wrestling with it. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. So in Herod's corner are the chief priests and the teachers of the law. This is not accidental language by Matthew. Matthew is saying Herod has aligned himself with Rome. So when we talk about Herod, we're talking about Rome here. And and Jerusalem has aligned itself with Herod. So it's all this big, like, this thing. So the Magi's question about a new king, when they come along and, and ask about a liberator, a bringer of hope, it's read as a threat to the entire financial, religious, and political system of Jerusalem. And its, and its alliance with Rome, okay? So this causes Herod to become disturbed, and I love that section. It says, and all Jerusalem with him. It's like he's a symbol of something. It's not just Herod. The hope is disturbing. It's great. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may, may, also may go and worship him. And we, of course, know this is a lie. Herod's not going to worship Jesus. He's looking to kill Jesus. And in many ways, this is more evidence to destroy our sentimental nativity scene of Jesus' as Santa giving all the presents to boys and girls here. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they, they, over, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary. So Matthew is landing the plane for us this morning. You have this opening scene of political corruption and power moves, these large-scale tensions and issues And you have the Magi asking about a prophecy of a liberator who would liberate the land and the people from the clutches of a corrupt religious and political system that was Rome, Herod, and Jerusalem. And the scene then rapidly de-escalates to a house in Bethlehem. To a house. To a random family. And Matthew beautifully sets up a contrast of a small family home in Bethlehem with the powerful palace in the urban capital of Jerusalem, with the Magi in between who are coming to Israel to seek a liberator. They're looking for someone who they think will finally do something about Rome and what Rome is doing to the world, and they are looking for hope, hope. And so these Eastern Magi worship the Christ child alongside Mary and Joseph, Under the banner of Herod, Rome and the threat of Jesus as a liberating Messiah. So on the one hand, you have Herod and Rome. Again, you believe, who believe, Herod and Rome believe they possess hope. And it can be yours for a lifetime of easy payments. I mean, come on. And on the other hand, you have the Christ child in a small house with nothing. Okay, let's step back for a second. There's this text. And let's think about the story for a second. Now I want you to consider how the story sounds. Just let, just kind of unhook your brain if you can from all of the childhood stuff you've heard about it. And let's just like let it resonate as a story. I did this this week. I read a thing that said, do this. It's very strange. These wise men go to Herod and tell Herod about a new king who is the current king of Israel. That is weird. That's a weird part of the story. Herod, as we know, kills the firstborn children in Israel, and Mary and Joseph have to escape to Egypt, the historical echo of Pharaoh and the Israelites in captivity. All that is very weird. They follow a star to Bethlehem, and a new liberator king of Israel is in a poor house somewhere. That's weird. The story is located at the beginning of Matthew, and it feels, as many commentators have said, it feels very different and set apart from the rest of the book. It itself feels very weird. Even the Epiphany text this morning, Mandy and I had a a confusion over which text it was, because this text is actually like two days ago, but there's a different text today, and it's very confusing, and it doesn't happen very often in the entirety of the church calendar. The whole Sunday, this whole text, all of it is weird. And I think this is why the text sits at the beginning of Epiphany. There is an absurdity there's an absurdity to the collection of people worshiping the Christ child. There is an absurdity to the political and religious situation they all find themselves in. There is an absurdity to the text and its relationship to the rest of the gospel. An absurdity to it. It's funny, kind of. And when I say, when I say absurd, I'm not saying the story didn't happen. I'm saying it did. And it It's absurd. This, this is the kind of thing that happens. It's, it's just absurd. And for people who tell the truth about themselves and the world, there's something very weird, absurd, about hope in the midst of a world like ours. The moments in your life that you participated in and experienced hope, my guess is, they were a little absurd. There was a simultaneous... Laughter along with some pain. The hope kind of like hits you out of nowhere. Something happened to you. Someone was abs- absurdly faithful to you. And hope, it just pummels you. It feels like, it almost feels like pain. The hope of God, the hope of God, which is God, is experienced in the midst, as this text shows us, of absurd fidelity. The Magi traveling miles and defying a king, as we see in chapter 1. Joseph accepts Mary as his bride, even though she's pregnant. It's all absurd, but there's, in the midst of that absurdity, there are these absurd acts of faithfulness, of fidelity. The hope of God is experienced in the midst of this. And let let me be clear, not great acts of giving your money, not great acts, not great and grand gestures of kindness and charity, that's actually not what I'm talking about. It's not what I mean. In some way, that is the Western understanding of hope. The idea that you can possess it and then just like give like grand things to people. The idea that you have it, right, and someone else doesn't, you can just wield it the way you want. What I mean is absurdity. And this is why it's so hard to see hope in the midst of us. We don't own it, and it happens to us. And we just start smiling while simultaneously feeling pain. I've shared this story before. Um, I've shared it, it feels like, a hundred times, um, but I don't care. It's like a foundational story for me, and it's, it's powerful to me. Um, my mom's side of the family is all from Kentucky, and I spent my summers running around the mountains in eastern Kentucky, um, making friends, getting into trouble, throwing rocks in the street. And there is this story that is known in these small towns of Corbin and London and Ferriston, Kentucky. Um, It's a story that's known that I've heard my parents talk about, and I've heard it being passed around. Um, It's even on... on, There's somebody on the radio who's from that area that talks about it as well. Um, It's deeply shaped me, and it's given me hope for a long time. So I want to share it with you because I think it symbolizes what I'm trying to get at. So there was a kid in eastern Kentucky... Who grew up and while there came out as gay in the '90s. Um, not exactly a popular place to be a gay teenager, much less in the '90s. And it was um, he eventually uh, graduates high school and goes to California and just leaves and is like, "See you later, I'm out of here." And the young man over the next few years tragically dies, and they're trying to send the body back to his hometown uh, for a funeral. And the problem is that the family doesn't want to have anything to do with him. And no one does. The town doesn't, they just don't accept the body and they send the body to the funeral home there. <clears throat> and there's a, a pastor that's there. And this is how we kind of know about it. He gets a phone call and he's like, hey, um, there's a young man here. You know who it is. It's a small town. Uh, would you do the funeral service? And he's like, okay, sure. You know, I'll do that. It's like the pastor's responsibility, you know. And so. He walks into the room on the day of the funeral, at the funeral home, and there's, um, there's nobody in the room except one person from the funeral home. And uh, he's noticed there's nobody here. He's like, oh, maybe they'll show up a little bit later. And he sits down in the front row with his, with his Bible and his notes and the, the eulogy and everything he prepared. And they open the doors for the funeral and the visitation, and for the next hour, like, nobody comes. Like, not one person. And so the funeral home director comes in and says, hey, you know, we can be done. It's, it's, it's a little time afterwards. And the pastor says, no, like, everyone deserves a funeral. And so the pastor goes up to the pulpit and gives the eulogy, the message, and the prayers to a completely empty room. Nobody's there to hear it. And I don't know, there's something about that story every time. It just fills me with, like, pain it also fills me with like, this hope of uh, like this absurd act of fidelity to a young man that no one would even have saw. The only reason it got out is because the funeral director saw it. And this is the story of the Magi. This is what I think Matthew's trying to do at the beginning of this text. A story found at the beginning of Epiphany to remind us that hope is amongst us. And it is revealed to us through unexpected acts, uh, uh, unexpected and absurd acts of fidelity. One more story. Sitting in a room. Uh, we, were, I was, we were in this room, actually, sitting in a room. This was a random room. No, we were sitting in this room on a Sunday morning, and all of a sudden it started to, If those of you who are new here, this happened, so just, just it started to smell really bad in the room. Like, really, really bad in the room. And um, we don't know what's going on. Obviously, it smells horrible in here. Something's going on. And I walk around the back to this back side, and um, I open up the mechanical room, and coming up through the floor is exactly what you think it is. It's just, it's happening right here. And I think to myself, oh, I'm in charge of the building. This is, <laughs> this is fun. And so I asked Marty, uh, Beth's, Beth's husband, uh, hey, like, hey, man, would you be willing to help me with this and he's like are you kidding i'm like i don't know like i don't know what to do here and so uh, the plumber arrives cleans it out and it starts going back down and we have to kind of like shovel it all back down into the drain after church it's happening not a fun job not excited about this so we're doing it and I, i if i remember correctly one of us had like a squeegee thing that was wasn't even it wasn't working right i don't know and, they, and one of us had a shovel that was flat on the front, and that was working way better. Like that was that was really working. I needed one of those. And at this point, we had a kid, a, an eighth-grade kid at the time from the neighborhood, all of a sudden pop his head into the back mechanical room, and it's like, "Hey, Cole, what's up?" Whoa! <laughs> and I was like, "Hi, hey, what's up? How are you?" And he's like, "What are you doing?" And I'm like, "Oh, we're there's an accident at church." He's like, "I've got the thing. I've got the perfect thing." And he, like, goes home, and I'm like, well, I don't know what that's about. And then about uh, 10 minutes later, I, you know, I come out of the mechanical room trying to just catch my breath, and I look, and up over the hill comes this eighth-grade kid on his bike with a shovel that's flat in the front, because I was talking about it, and his front tire's wobbling, and he's trying to hold it, and he's an, he's an eighth-grade kid, and he comes and helps us shovel our crap, <laughs> and... It was, an abs- it was absurd. All of it was completely absurd. It was an absurd act of fidelity. And I was like, I don't know what else I'm doing the rest of the day, but we're doing this together. It gave me hope. It gave me hope. Not great acts. Absurd ones. Vulnerable ones. Acts where nobody is in the room to see it but one funeral home director who told everyone in town. Acts of a kid riding his bike while trying to hold a shovel. He wasn't very good at helping, by the way. I just want to say he wasn't very good at helping. But he helped this much. (laughs) We experience hope, brothers and sisters. We experience hope. We don't possess it. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for these words of Matthew 2. We thank you for the absurdity of the story and just um, those moments in our lives where, and honestly, it's just hard to talk about. (laughs) Those moments where we, for some reason, come alive in the midst of just chaos. And we just thank you for each other. I'm just so grateful for each other. I think about single moms who wrestled kids to be here today. I think about um, those who are elderly or, or struggle to move their bodies in a way that makes it easy for them to be here, but they're here. For those online who, whether it's anxiety or miles or just whatever it is that they're like, this is what I can connect with at this time. <clears throat> just thinking of the, the young adults in the room who Saturday night's a night to hang out with friends and Sunday's a great time to get some extra cash. And uh, they're here, worshiping with us. And I think about how absurd that all is—that we're all here in Aletha, where we're at in this in this country—and we found each other. And God, I'm just grateful for that. We love you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Amen. Thank you, Cole going to receive communion together at this time and the way we do that um, is uh ushers will come down the rows and release each row you can come on down pick your favorite server not a <laughs> not a popularity contest but pick me um and the sorry this is a sacred time <laughs> um the server will say to you remember the body and blood of christ and you can respond with amen or i will remember First, however, we will read from Corinthians. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is new, my new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Pray. Father, we pray. in ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a spiritual food and drink and a means of your grace. As we receive it into you, our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us and make us new from the inside out and send us into the world to be salt and light so that, so that those can taste and see that you are good, so all may know your goodness. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Will you come?